uh, I'll tell you a quick little story. Uh, I've been, I was, I've been literally praying for the past couple of years that Jehovah's Witnesses show up on my door. I want to say praying. I'm so serious. Lo and behold, about a year ago, they show up and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, pride, pride, certainly one of my, one of my sins, the Lord, I'm, I'm going to keep it capped. But I was proud. I thought I defended the church well that day. So the next time they knocked, they had to bring back one of their top upper guys. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I was like, let's go. Jordan Pacheco, welcome on Talking Catholic, man. How you doing? I'm fine, Mr. Gray. How are you doing? Hey, doing well, doing well. Yeah, welcome in. I heard about you from a per person who's a fan of your podcast, Trudy, and so I know oh, she's true. listening. What's up, Trudy? Love you, Trudy. Um, so, yeah, man, I just hopped over to your podcast. I really like what I was hearing. So I want to just hop in there and introduce you to my audience. And um, so, yeah, what is Glad Trat about? It sounds like somebody that likes... That's glad to be a trad. Is that? <laughs> that is that. Well, it looks like the pun has been exposed. Uh, so I, I, I am part of a duo of the Glad Trad podcast, which I run with my good buddy, Rodolfo Carlos. And we highlight, we're both traditional Catholics. So the Latin mass, um, traditional forms of piety, you know, meat on Fridays, the whole cake caboodle, dang memes. And um, what's cool is that the Glad Trad podcast highlights what I would say are really positive changes in orthodoxy, and tradition that's kind of coming back inside the church. So um, we talk a lot about the growth of the Latin mass, both on the diocesan level, as well as with people like the fraternity or the Institute of Christ the King. We talk about the, the resurgence of traditional family values, of, of cultural elements around Catholicism. And then we also talk about the more fun aspects that's inside tradition right now. So um, there's a huge wave of Catholic memes right now that have returned to tradition. We talk about pipe smoking, which is a really common thing amongst trad men. And so we're both, we're both uh, pipe smokers. Uh, and so this is like a whole bunch of topics we talk about, sacred music, sacred architecture, but really with more positive of a bend to kind of give you a little break from what could seem as doom and gloom in the church sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You guys do cover a wide range of topics. So everybody that's listening um, and watching this podcast, please, how, how, how do people find it? So, I, I just I just went to Google and I typed in glad. You know, I appreciate you starting around the battle. That's very kind. Um, yes, you can. I'm very happy about this. If you really just Google Glad Trad Podcast, you'll find us. We're available here on YouTube. Um, you can find our Instagram is also a hot feed Glad Trad Podcast. But we're also literally where every single um, podcast is. So Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Apple, you you name it. Um, so you just type us in and you'll you'll be able to find us right quick. Right. Right. Glad trad, not rad trad. Not rad trad. We do have it now. That being said, we have a segment in our shows called Mad Trad, where we get to kind of let our hair down and, and talk about something going on in the church that kind of kind of irks us, you know, a bad <laughs> bishop or a, or an incompetent sort of liturgy or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've seen it all. We've seen it all. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's back up for a moment, man, because I'm really excited to have you on here. Really, just talk about your your faith journey because you're you're what we call a cradle. Catholic, you were born that way, right? Yeah, yeah. So, tell us a little bit about your your faith journey. So, I feel I feel I must tell you right off the bat that I feel kind of sad that I'm not a convert because all the converts I meet are wonderful because they fought so hard for the faith and so much stuff was just kind of handed to me. It feels, <laughs> but but that being said, I I have a, a opinion that every cradle Catholic needs to have in a lot of ways the same sort of conversion moment that many uh, many uh, converts study themselves into. So. Um, I'm, I'm cradle Catholic, born and raised. I grew up in the Norvis Ordo. 
Um, I come from a really small hick town middle of nowhere called Elizabeth, Colorado. So, you know, a very, uh, a, I'd say it's pretty, it was very middle of the road kind of upbringing, right? Guitar masses, the whole nine yards. Um, but, um, I, but we, I, I have always loved the faith. I don't think there's ever a time I was away from it. Um, and I've always loved history and I've loved music. So the older I get, the more I, I kind of notice that the sort of saints that we put statues above, um, you know, they don't quite wear the same things that they used to wear, especially the nuns. And with sacred music, you know, I grew up in a very uh, David Haas, St. Louis Jesuits kind of parish. Very well-meaning sorts of people, by the way. It wasn't, wasn't a bad upbringing, all things considered, I'd say, because it taught me the faith, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first time I heard what I would consider real serious sacred music, Chant of Polyphony, was probably my, my public high school choir, as it is with a lot of people. So, you know, the more I read about the faith, the more I, I fell in love with the faith. And then finally, thank God, freshman year, my confirmation, two things happened. The first thing is I went on a cruise with my family and I got trashed by an evangelical Protestant in a debate. I mean, I got floored by a kid who was a year younger than me, I swear. And I was so mad because everything I believed about the Catholic faith, I knew was true, but I didn't have any, where do you find confession in the Bible? Don't you know that I could commit uh, a million mortal sins or as you would call mortal sins, murders, but as long as I'm a good person and love Jesus, I'm going to heaven. I mean, just the whole, and I was just, I was so mad. I didn't think it was a fire of the Holy Spirit. I was piping mad. So yeah. I got on a huge apologetics binge. Um, yeah. so, so when I, when I, uh, in confirmation, um, especially when I was on my retreat, I really felt the Holy Spirit kind of take hold and say, this is the faith. This is the faith of the church and you are a soldier for Christ. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. from that kind of foundation, um, it led me to research deeper into the church's dogmas and doctrines and teachings and it's, it's historical course. And, um, I realized I wasn't really being fed at the Novus Ordo and I discovered the traditional Latin mass. Uh, and from my first asparagus, I was just completely hooked. So I've been what I, what I would consider a trad for the past three years now. <laughs> yeah. It, so you're, so you have, so you're on a, a cruise ship. Which cruise, which cruise ship is this? That's like, that was Royal Caribbean. Something like that. Royal, Royal, that's yeah. nice. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. like Carnival. I mean, that's um, nice. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> well, you, know, you must not get licked by a lot of Protestant debates on Carnival. See, right, right, right. Yeah. I want a challenge. Yeah. So these are smarter cruise ship people. So yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so man, yeah. So you're you're on the Royal Caribbean, mm-hmm. and I'm cracking up when I'm listening to your story because it sounds like that one time when I was like, I think I was in ninth grade, I got into a fight with this kid. It's like a physical fight, and I think he got the best of me. Yeah. But. I never had an opportunity to go back and fight him again, you know? So, and so you have this, this debate with this guy who kind of like floors you and shows you that you don't know anything about Mm -hmm. why that you believe, like why you believe. And, and so you go back and you study your faith, but part of you wants to go debate him again. You, you have me read well. Uh, I'll tell you a quick little story. Uh, I've been, I was, I've been literally praying for the past couple of years that Jehovah's Witnesses show up on my door. I want to say, Pran, I'm so serious. Lo and behold, about a year ago, they show up, and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, pride, pride, certainly one of my, one of my sins. So, Lord, I'm, I'm going to keep it capped. But I was proud. I thought I defended the church well that day. So the next time they knocked, they had to bring back one of their top upper guys. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I was like, let's go. <laughs> yeah. So they, they were you. 
So yeah, yeah, they were you on the cruise ship, but they came back with some backup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, it's like on one hand, you know, you you go, well, all right, this is gonna get more interesting. Really, really good discussions and everything. But I've I've always loved apologetics. I think the churches has been so good on on so many topics, and you just got to know where to look. And nowadays, it's there's so many resources, uh, yeah. podcasts included, that that can help us with that. Absolutely. And um, man, so you just so you're in your in your sometime in your twenties, right? You discover the traditional land, right? What is it that attracts you to? Was it the the beauty or the solemnity or what? Yeah. what? And tell us about the first one you went to. So I had gone to a couple of low masses at here in Colorado. The fraternity has a parish in Denver called Our Lady Mount Carmel, where, where I'm a current, me and my fiance are current parishioners. Um, but I hadn't been to a high mass. So if you will, I, I guess I'd say I more or less read myself into tradition. I noticed that two things happened, right? One thing that really drove me is that, and this is the experience for a lot of Catholics, but out of all the kids who graduated in my confirmation class, I'd be lucky if half of them are practicing the faith. It's probably closer to a quarter. So that's just, we hear the six come in, one uh, one Catholic comes in, six leave statistic. And for my for my parish, whom I'd grown up with a lot of these guys, my friends, I saw that in real time. And I realized like the, the, the arguments that they were having, the arguments they wanted to use to leave the church weren't being answered properly. And then finally, um, you know, I just, I just, would read through history like this is what Gregorian chant sounds like and my work in film what's wonderful is that you can take the most secular person in Hollywood the most atheistic person in Hollywood but if you tell an atheistic set decorator I need this to look like a church and you tell that to the director I need this to look like a church and what do they do I've always said that Hollywood doesn't really believe Vatican II happened because it's always like the full incense, the full choir, everything. It's, it's really garments. The fact that nuns are still in their habits, it's wonderful. So I would see that all throughout history, right? And um, one day I realized, like, I wanted to see what mass sustained the church through so many different conversions, so many different trials and tribulations. Discovered the Latin mass with the fraternity at St. Victor's at the time in West Hollywood. And my first mass is... I, I realized it's funny because I'd never heard an asperges before. For those who don't know, that is sometimes on feast days in Novus Ordo, you'll see the priest will will sprinkle holy water on the people. That happens every high mass uh, for the Latin mass. So mm-hmm. I heard that and I heard the choir just chanting this beautiful polyphony, one of the most common strains of the asperges. And I just started crying and I didn't know anything about the Latin mass, but I knew that I was home, that this was like a fulfillment, if you will, of, <sighs> being a Roman Catholic. And so I got hooked bad. So much that I have a podcast now. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. Just like that. Yeah. 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 And you're um I think that's an amazing point that you made because you're you're in um because you do work in digital film and photography and things like that. That's your that's your profession. That's your yeah. you, you've been trained in. Yeah. Um and I like that point that you made that Hollywood gets it, right? They know the difference between Catholics and Protestants. And it's <laughs> and it, yeah. It, yeah, and it's it's cool. It's nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they get it. Um wow, yeah, because you never see in movies, you never see the way they present mass is never the new order right. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's never, never that. It's always they get it. That's that's something. What's your um, what's your take on Vatican II? 
Well, let's let's go. All right. Um, so <laughs> it, it's let's say this, especially since I've grown up as with a lot of my generation, especially the one before hearing the spirit of Vatican II, the new evangelization and all these buzzwords and not ever actually getting precision. My take on Vatican II is this. I, I, I have the way, I think maybe it's, it's Archbishop uh, Schneider or Bishop Schneider's way, but I can't remember. But it's that Vatican II was a legitimate ecumenical council in which to say that the church had the competency to call it. Its language and its formula is, even if you're not trying to criticize it, extremely different from other ones because there are no anathemas in Vatican II. So the question I have is, what does a Catholic have to believe in 1970 that he didn't believe in 1960? And the answer, even by the most uh, ardent supporters of Vatican II, is really nothing. There's no, there's no anathemas. So I find that Vatican II um, it happened. It was a legitimate council. It should be treated as a legitimate council. I do think that there are errors in the documents. I, I find that especially in regards to do Christians and Muslims worship the same God, for instance. I do think that there is a great breed of religious indifferentism. And I, I, I find that going forward, a lot of the return to tradition is simply to look at Vatican II in the context of, of well, I guess they'd say the hermeneutic continuity. If you find something in Vatican II that doesn't seem to have a lot of basis in prior teaching, it's actually not on pains of anathema. It's not a mortal sin as a Catholic to go, you know, I, I value the church's teaching authority, of course, but I, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't need to believe that Allah and Jesus are the same and you know, have it on pains of heaven. So, um, I, I kind of more or less, I kind of more or less adopt what I would, it's kind of like a wide and trap thing. Some people want to really tear it down. I just think that a later council is going to come and really set the record straight on pains of anathema, just like the old days. Mm. What is sealed, what's not sealed. Uh, the the world of the new mass, I think, has a lot to do with, of course, what's found in the documents of Vatican II. So I think it's really nice now that all of our life we've heard spirit of Vatican II, and now people are going back to the actual documents. And then they're saying, well, it seems like in the documents, there are also problems that we need to just talk about at the very least. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Do you think that the, the spirit of <laughs> the spirit of Vatican II is just theological vagary? Just a, <laughs> just the just gray yeah, so, area? Yeah, yeah, it, seems, it seems like Pope Francis is truly a pope of the second Vatican, of the spirit of the second Vatican Council, because the way he writes or whoever writes for him, the way he speaks, it's oftentimes just, just theological vagary. And it's in that vagary where new theologies and new liturgies seem to be able to be planted and given birth to. You, you, Charles Colomb had a really good quip about understanding how the Holy Father thinks. And as to your point, yeah, this is a product of the Second Vatican Council and, and, that, and that nouveau theology. Because remember that for the longest amount of time, the church was governed more by, by Thomism. And one thing about Thomism is that it almost to a fault, and I think there's an argument to be made there that maybe it's too much, is really wanting clarity in everything. That, that the universe is noble and, and understandable and it's good and that we as, as Catholics have an obligation to really tear apart everything. What you see is this great, they call it the taking off of medieval walls in the Second Vatican Council. But yeah, you just see nothing but ambiguity. And so I think that's why a lot of times when when traditionalists or, or Catholics were just looking, have very pinpoint questions on the documents on the council, where in previous councils like Trent, which is an extremely clear council on what's yes and what's no, and it had to be, it was a Protestant Reformation for everyone's sake, Vatican II has this ambiguity laced over. And so it makes a lot of sense why we talk about the spirit of Vatican II more than the letter of Vatican II. The letter is mm. not very clear either. 
So we, you know, we've never had a spirit of a council before, as far as I can tell. There was no spirit of Trent. That's that's the Counter Reformation. So, you know, yeah. there was no spirit of Vatican One, I guess. But yeah, I think that it's it's completely allowed for uh, religiously vague ideas and notions to come in, and that, that's why you can have an argument in the church in in St. Peter's itself. If there's a Pachamama, is that an idol or is it the Virgin Mary? And I'm like, I can't imagine. I mean, the Renaissance popes did some bad stuff, but the difference was everyone was at least able to call a spade a spade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know, when I, I always tell people, as far as like the, the dogmatic constitutions of the Second Vatican Council, you know, I can read those within the hermeneutical continuity. I can. Right. Once I once I get out the dogmatic constitutions, you know, it's it's um, you know, it's you know, you have to do a lot more jumping through um burning um hula hoops to you know <laughs> yeah to get to you know to find that hermeneutical continuity because just some things that just aren't in tradition yeah. um but um but were you when you you were, you were coming up in the faith um were you baptized in oh. the the correct formula Oh yeah, I know. Isn't that that's a thing now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, do you so, have a video, do you have a videotape? I I don't have a videotape. As far as I know, I might, but I don't. I've never seen it before. Yeah. Man, that's so funny, isn't it? This is an actual thing. Like, wow. I gotta I gotta go back in church history to find out the last time. Anyway, the answer is uh, <laughs> uh, as far as I believe, as I hold, I have no reason to doubt that I was I was I wasn't baptized validly. <laughs> <laughs> that poor priest in forever. You see these guys, and they're like, "Oof." Um, no, I the church I was baptized in, uh, which was uh, Saint Thomas. I think it's Saint Thomas uh, More in or Thomas Aquinas in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My point being is that I think I'm okay. That parish, as far as I, they were very good to give me my baptismal records when I was very early on for my marriage prep and everything. And they seem like my my uncle's a deacon there, so I, I'm pretty sure that they're doing okay, and they were probably doing okay. Yeah. 1995. God willing, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna challenge it. I don't wanna. I don't wanna open up that Pandora's box. Yeah, I mean, it's really such a good thing that we keep good records as Catholics. I mean, oh my gosh, it's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, is that just the uh, um, this whole thing with invalid baptisms that's going mm -hmm. on? Is that is that just the thing that we that we're gonna find in the um, churches that exercise that, that celebrate the Novus Order right, the uh -huh. New Order right? Yeah. I mean, is the um, traditional is the traditional lad right today in 2020 immune from that? So yeah, so here's a couple of things. The easiest way is this: Latin is a dead language, but it's also a sacred language. So, in other words, unless you're really a scholar of Latin, I think a priest. I find this. So I I, I think I will allow for room potentially of liturgical abuses in Latin mass, mostly for shorthanding. I mean. They say these anecdotal stories of the mass taking 20 minutes once upon a time in 1960 or whatever. And I don't know if that's true or not true, but I don't, I don't deny it that I think that everyone needed had to have better catechesis. Yeah, but generally speaking, I think it's, it's harder in the Latin, mostly because you are literally saying the black and doing the red. Um, unless you're going to really inject the vernacular in the prayer, right? So if you're doing a baptismal rite in Latin and then decide to do it in English all of a sudden, we have to throw everybody off. I think it's harder. It's considerably harder because of how Latin is in regards to the culture right now, a set apart sort of language. So that is like our everyday speak. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've never heard of any any traditional priests having to get a call because they they changed from I to to uh, we or are in in Latin, you know. Right, right, right. That's such. It's just such a strange thing that that man. Now, so you you were raised in Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you culturally identify as a black man? Ooh, interesting. Um, well, I mean, part of my my first initial reaction is it doesn't matter what I what I what I identify as I am. <laughs> you know, right. I can't, I right. can't change. I can't Rachel Dolan's all this. You know. Right. I mean, like the the cultural identity. Oh, like culture. I, yeah, like cultural, like cultural identity. Like, oh, okay, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm just making like no. Um, I mean, I'd say yes. Um, but I think that. One thing about what that means is a couple of things of my history. For instance, I'm I'm adopted, right? Both of my parents are Hispanic. My older sister is adopted as well. She's white. I have two little siblings. No relation to me, no relation to my parents. They're both black, raised in a Hicktown, Illinois, culturally white area. So, you know, it's like I, and so there are, there are aspects of a lot of different cultures that I, I can really find myself gelling with no matter what situation I'm in. I've always been very comfortable in my own skin as, as a regard. Huh. So... You know, it's like, of course, I identify as black. Um, my my heroes are is the um, 761st Tank Battalion, World War II Buffalo Soldiers. Those guys, I, I adore jazz music. I'm a jazz musician. Um, I like Ethiopian iconography. I've been looking at that lately. It's kind of a refutation yeah. for people saying that uh, Christianity's been whitewashed. And I, I think that that's wonderful and extremely, extremely valuable. So that aspect's there. You know, I'm a Pacheco, right? My mom's maiden name was Pachicha, so my grandparents are very Hispanic. So, you know, I, I have no problem eating green chili in New Mexico, wherever right, with my with my gente. So that's that aspect. And then I'm a farm boy from a place that's culturally white. So, you know, I everyone I you know all my Jen might kill me for this, but all my all my girlfriends prior to my fiance now were, were white, not through lack of time, but through the fact that you kind of have to just go where the source is. <laughs> Yeah. So what's available? You know, yeah. It's available, right? I'm a man, you're a woman. Anyway, but no, but so I'd say, yeah, I mean I identify as a black man. I, I, I pride myself in the race that God had given me, but you know, it's not like the ultimate banner because right. I don't even know in that way, like what camp would I fall into? Yeah. So there's no there's no I ask you that because there's no struggle for you um being um, attracted to the traditional Latin right, where mm -hmm. we just don't find a whole lot of Black Americans. We just yeah, don't. yeah. According to the, to the stats, I think one percent of TLM attendees are 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 Black um, here in this country. So, um, but no, it's never been a struggle. And I think part of it is that it's ancient, it's old, and Latin is it, Latin wasn't to say Latin was a European language is kind of because the Roman Empire of course stretched from Britain which didn't even understand Latin down through Syria and into um, into the empires of the east and down into Africa of course Egypt North Africa so generally speaking I, I but you know I'm an American still right and so unless you're unless you're like an actual African American our roots are our roots are American by nature we it's way easier for us to comprehend anything that's come American. So we, we understand George Washington, Abe Lincoln, we understand the Magna Carta. And so, yeah, it's, it's my, it's culture in that way, in the purest sense. So yeah, there's no issue at all. It's not a race thing at all, especially in Latin mass, because it's, it's so literally universal. The missionaries who spread it are a testament to that.
Yeah. And I always tell people, um, you know, I, I've always been, since I came into the, to the Catholic Church, I'm a convert. Yeah. Um, I, Welcome my, home. Oh, what'd you say? I said, congratulations. Welcome home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. It's always, you know, the housewarming gifts keep coming. Mm -hmm. But my experience, like the experience you had in, in the traditional life, I think your experience was a high mass. My, my, I fell in love. The liturgy I fell in love with was the, the Byzantine. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. The first time I went to um, a Byzantine right church, and they were singing in Aramaic. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, I knew I was home. Yeah. I just never felt comfortable. You know, after the, after the liturgy is over, you know, there's the community there. Everyone's, you know, eating and drinking. And no one's speaking English, you know. Yeah. So yeah. for me, I, I, I found that. You know, but I know plenty of um, you know Black Americans who had that same experience as me. Fell in love with the East, mm -hmm. and they didn't. They didn't really mind that. You know, you know, they they stuck around long enough to make friends. You know, me. Yeah. You know, I was. You know, it was just. Hmm. But you know, I still I still make time to wherever I'm at. You know, if I'm it's available. Oh, I'm always you know always make time to go back to the East and yeah. um, experiencing experiencing liturgy. But when it comes to the traditional Latin rite. Although I go to that, that right sometimes in, you know, when I get to St. Louis, um, I will say this about black Americans who <clears throat> are not attracted to because they don't feel it is representative of, of what we, um, the, 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 the quality of what we say is a black American experience mm -hmm. or whatever, yeah. is that we can't even speak about what it means to be black and Catholic in America without speaking of the traditional Latin rights. Because from the point in time we arrived, black Americans arrived in this country in the, 15, in, uh, in the 1500s in Spain, in, in, um, in St. Augustus or St. Augustine, that that has been the liturgical experience of, of black in America, blacks in America. Um, all the religious orders, uh, people like all the people like we know, um, Pierre Toussaint, um, mm -hmm. Father Augustus Tolton, yeah. um, that was their right. Um, and so up, up until, you know, the, the second Vatican council. And then after that, of course, you know, is when we start seeing something else, but that's black Catholic history right there. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the, um, where, if you would have gone to Haiti, what mass would you have seen at the time of the Haitian revolution would have been the Latin mass, you know, there's so many examples. And you know, there's this other thing where it's very funny to me because you know it's it's the Black American experience, but it's also the Asian American experience, and it's it's most certainly the Mexican American experience, the Hispanic American experience. Mexico, right? The the one of the greatest daughters of the Church um, in South America. All of them were converted, and what right did they fall under? It was the they created a new right. It was a Latin mass. Right. Um, in a movie like Silence, right when the when the Jesuit order was trying to get into Japan, it was the Latin Mass, and you know there's these talks, of course, about sometimes when language is just so different, doing some allowances in the Mass, even in the old rite, uh, to allow for there to be better synthesis. So, for instance, uh, the Jesuit missionaries who would uh, evangelize to the Northern Native American, the the uh, the, the Huron, for instance, would allow for the chanting of during the Mass in Huron. Uh, 
you know, and why? Because Latin is such a far language, or China too, China would have experiments with this. And this is during like the old evangelization days. This isn't a product of Vatican II, because Chinese is such a different language than Latin. Yeah. Um, that they would there were allowances for that kind of way. But generally speaking, the mass is universal. I mean, Catholic is Greek for Catholicos, universal. So the mass is universal. And there's a really thriving fraternity parish in Nigeria, of course. And, you know, you see uh, uh, Jamaica, uh, Jamaica um, was it Jamaica or um, I think it was Jamaica, um, just celebrated their first Latin Mass since 1969. And so you're like, well, it seems like this is the tradition of the church. You know, I, I don't think I don't think people should should be so self-focused to say, well, it's not mm. my people or whatever, because it's like, look, thank God we we're all rescued from paganism. So, so this is like this because this is our home, you know. It's it's a home to a to a, a black man as well as a white man. So you know that's yeah. that's what the church does, and the church has been very good about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a good point. I think you know, obviously, it's a struggle. I think that there there's a story that Roy's told as being in blacks in America that we have to identify that even though I was born in 1972, mm-hmm. that I'm not my own person. I have to incorporate the history and the stories of every black person for the past 500 years, not the good things that happened, but all the bad oh, things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to, I have to have that corporate experience. So I can't have my own story because I can't have my own story. I can't appreciate a liturgy that are, I mean, that's, I mean, let's, let's, I mean, it, it is ancient medieval worship. It, as far as the way it is structured in the Gregorian chants. I mean, but that's that, but that's not a bad thing. It's, what, it's we, what we kind of forget is that for the longest amount of time, it's funny because you read the Greeks and the Romans, on this, especially the Greeks. The Greeks, uh, to the north of them was Dacia. Dacia are a lily white people, but the Greeks called them barbarian. So what we discover in the ancient world, it's St. Paul. St. Paul's a Roman citizen. So what do we discover about the ancient world? Well, race is tied to culture only because of geography, because it's kind of hard to, you know, which is why Rome changes its culture a little bit when the Germans. Germanic people start nomad, you know, migrating down towards Italy. But culture was everything to people. And it was your cultural element which would later determine your kind of affinity to wherever place you're in. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's something I'm, I've been kind of really looking at, but I find the kind of races we think about it is, is new only because we're not geographically locked as we once upon a time were. The, and I think, you know, the transatlantic slave trade really started that, but just the, the world of exploration and colonization the first time ever you have people from entire different cultures can cross oceans to kind of commingle in places. So the best thing to have an affinity for is whether it's the Eastern right or the Latin right, it's to find something that is universal to everybody. Because even the Latin mass is not, it's not, its structure isn't about its language. Its structure isn't about what man sits on the chair of St. Peter, and its structure isn't about what, um, what vestments might wear and what part of the world they might come from. It is completely about the transubstantiation of our Lord on the altar. It's completely about the fact that for a moment in history, the most perfect moment in history, God becomes the bread and wine. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And it doesn't matter, you know, I'm not, look, I'm, not a, I'm, a, I'm a Latin supremacist only as far as the Novus Ordo goes. I'm, I'm very happy the Byzantines exist, the Melkites exist. I've been to the Ukrainian Catholics, and I thought there was, I mean, I think Easter eggs are so beautiful. I think they're so beautiful. And I just want that reverence for everybody um, to, to, to be everywhere in the church. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what everyone deserves, um, yeah. to be sure. You're engaged. 
I'm engaged. Congratulations. Like, yeah. yeah. You know, so where did you where did you where'd you meet your wife at? Your future wife at? Oh, you're really gonna love this. The Norbertine Order put on a live mass at Christ the King Church in uh, at USC, University of Southern California. So so I met my I met my fiance at a live mass. <laughs> a little really a little over a year ago, yeah. What was, what was she doing there? Well, she so her sister was an attendee, a prisoner alongside me at St. Vitus with the fraternity in San Fernando. So, um, so she came with her sister and she was mantied and everything. And I don't think, just as a side note, I don't think us as Catholic men really understand until you see it, just how wonderfully attractive, the genuinely attractive a mantia is, because that's, that's a woman who values her femininity and knows that it's sacred. So I was like, hello, Miss Genevieve Montgomery. <laughs> and said that we just kind of took it from there. <laughs> wow. Wow. Man, that is, that is so, that's such a beautiful story. You met her at the, yeah, you know, they, you, if you're going to find a good Catholic woman, you got to go to church and that's just what it is. Do you have to go to the, do you have to go to a traditional Latin mass to find a good wife? I don't think, I mean, you can find a good wife in a lot of different places, but I'd say that women at the traditional Latin, because I think that right now the Latin mass is attracting a lot of Catholics who are very serious about their faith, you know? And so, I mean, I'd say if you're a young man kind of looking for a woman, get yourself righted with God and actually, like, right. take up the mantle of what it means to be a man, you know, get off self-moping, get off pornography, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I think that you you could find a very, very good righted woman at the traditional Latin Mass. I, I did. Would recommend. And, they, and the women at the traditional Latin rites, they would tend to have more traditional values as well, as far as family, as far oh, as the... As far as far as um, how they the worldview, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, the last fifty six years of of our culture has been so antithetical to family and antithetical to to men as men and women as women. Of course, now of course you can sneeze and change your gender, right? So, um, but yeah, it's it was one of the most refreshing things. Again, is you know to understand what authentic masculinity looks like in light of what God's plan is. I think it's, it's way you know, it's reading St. Paul and Romans and Corinthians makes a lot more sense in that kind of regard. And then also women who love the Lord and they know that their vocation is drawn to family life. You find even those who are drawn to religious life. It's nice seeing like people who are interested in being nuns for the first time in my life. But when they talk about family, it's not like a give or take. It's not a question of, of what must I do as a woman? What must you do as a man? It really becomes a lot more organic. And that's, that's the most relief thing. They don't have to get through the societal hiccups that unfortunately is just everywhere across our culture yeah yeah but speaking of those values i mean what's the what's what's the intersect between some people struggle with being having traditional values right or we could say conservative values do as a catholic our traditional values do those always intersect perfectly with what we call conservative political values? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, that's, a, that's a great question. And the answer is sometimes they very much do. But I think we have to remember that there's a hierarchy of things. So for instance, your loyalty is first and foremost to God. For, no matter what, it's to, it's to Christ. Then to your family. It's from your family that you branch out. And later you can talk about your loyalty to your state. Because patriotism is a good virtue to have. Lest we, as long as we don't take it to, a, to, a, to make an idol of it. So sometimes as a traditionalist, yeah, there are plenty of values that I find conservative politics to identify with, namely, um, you know, life 
liberty, pursuit of happiness, protection of property, like all that kind of stuff, the church of Catholic can really vibe with. At the same time, we have to remember that the church is supra the culture. It's above the culture. The church is the moral authority handed by Christ himself in order to give the culture its way. So a right in culture should be able to look at the church's laws, respect them, know that they are God's laws, uh, which we don't have right now. And so sometimes, so, you know, it's like, I don't think that the Catholic church cares if we live in a federal republic or cares if we live in a monarchy. Mm. Um, it, it certainly is. It, it certainly does not want you living under, under communism, but it, it, it's much more flexible than I think we as Americans give credit for what good governance is. Um, what about market economies? You know, people talk about, you know, as a Catholic, um, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't have a fixed tax rate for things. Sure. But the Catholic Church also says that you, regardless of what bounty God has given you, and especially if God has given you bounty, that you have an obligation to the poor. You have an obligation to the needy. You have an obligation to feed the sick. At the end of the day, when you get to heaven, God's not going to care how you invested your 401k. He's going to care if you fed his sheep. And, you know, we've been really the free market system that we have in this country has allowed tremendous wealth and prosperity. And it also needs to be to be remembered that the opposite of that is just a strong Christian value system that respects people across all classes. Right. So um, sometimes I find myself at odds sometimes with conservative values in that regard, because you know, the, the greatest nation ever is God's kingdom. <laughs> and we're, we're his ambassadors here. And so it's important to have pride in your country. It's important to love your neighbor. It's important to live peacefully and goodly and justly, but only because of God's laws, laws uh, not man's laws. Um, but yeah, right now, especially with this election coming up, um, a traditional Catholic can really find himself a pretty good home with conservative politics as far as America is concerned. Quite better than the opposite camp. Yeah, yeah. What do, what do you think is, what do you think... Um, may happen in the future. Do you see what's the what's the ideal situation? You think you think every diocese or every um, should have a oratory or a mm. church devoted to the traditional Latin rite, or do you think um, is is that the good first step? Or I mean, mm -hmm. what do you what do you, as far yeah. as the traditional rite continues to spread and more people are drawn to it. Where, where does it go in the future? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that when I'm a middle-aged, in 20 years and certainly in 40 years, I think, because demographics don't lie. So by the time my children are about my age, um, I do think that you are going to see the Latin Mass probably about 30% celebrated. And, and at, if they're not, the Novus Ordo that, that I've experienced, and I'm sure that you've experienced, the kind of, Guitar mass, the banal liturgy, the father coming down from the altar to give everybody a kiss of peace kind of way, it's just not going to exist anymore. Um, that generation and that kind of thinking, I should say, is is going to its eternal reward. Um, and the priests that are behind them are those who picked up the rosary, picked up the scapular, picked up a lot of sacramentals that the generation of Vatican II really worked hard to cast aside. So, yeah, I, I think the, the traditional on mass has been so attractive. Demographics don't lie. Um, and what we are going to see is, yeah, I think that every diocese really should be extremely friendly to Latin mass. I, I think that if bishops really uh, understood the great value, the great treasure trove, the Latin mass would, they would do everything in their power to, to promulgate that upon the world. It is a mass that re can retain Catholics the best and also mm -hmm. can really snap up converts in a really radical way. All these statistics are coming out that 70% of 
RCA Catholics leave within the first two years. Well, I'm meeting I'm meeting Orthodox converts and atheist, hardcore atheist converts, young guys, young people who now are devoted to Christ Church and Latin Mass in ways I'd never experienced that before. So and, and vocations as well, right? That, no, oh, no. I said anything about the vocations. This is a nice thing. Yeah, it's, it's all the priests. You'll notice this about the median age for a Latin Mass attendee is considerably lower, but like a decade um, compared to the Novus Ordo, and the priests are younger. And there's a lot of them. And in fact, what's nice about them is that the fraternity is trying to expand at the same time. It's running out of places to put priests because there's always a place that wants a Latin Mass. And there are diocesan priests. There are priests who have been diocesan, were in the Novus Ordo, who are actually coming to the fraternity or learning the Latin Mass on their own and are now doing low masses. So in LA last year, I went to five or six different low, or five or six different Latin masses at different churches. That's crazy. That's got to be the Los, You said in Los Angeles? Yeah, in Los Angeles, yeah. Wow. So that kind of stuff doesn't go away easily, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. The traditional Latin mass is going to save Los Angeles. I mean, I, I'm extremely... <laughs> I mean, it is, and I'm grateful because um, what Father Friar and Masudi and the fraternity have done out there has been extremely commendable. What the Norbertine Order has done is commendable. What so many Dawson priests are doing is commendable. And especially city like LA where Catholicism is built into the bricks, but in a lot of ways it's so wayward depending on what direction you go into. Um, it's just so beautiful to see. It, it's, it's, it's spectacular. I'm, I'm very, that's the only thing that kept me in LA after I was done with filming some stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you say fraternity, you're speaking of... Oh, the, the fraternity of St. Peter. Um, okay. So that's FSSP. Yeah, the uh, insert what they are in Latin here. But yeah, those are the guys who I first experienced a lot in Ass with. And they are my, they're very close to my heart. They're my, certainly my most treasured order at the moment. Yeah, that was certainly the first time I ever went to a Latin Mass. It was at an FSSP in, I think, Lebanon, Ohio. Hey, that'd be a good place for it. I think there's a pretty other parish out there. Yeah, if you, it's probably um, you know, to not get into the canonically irregular status of the Society of Pius X. If people are looking for a Latin Mass that they know is completely, I should say, in communion with Rome without any kind of asterisks or anything, you're probably going to find the Fraternity of Saint Peter uh, is probably going to be the first group that you touch. Their their entire order is devoted to the promulgation. Of the Latin Mass, and they they're not they're not bi liturgical, so they only do the old Mass um, yeah. and the old rite in its entirety. The Novus Ordo in Ad Orientum is that good enough? So, well, I mean, it's a start. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've heard this one too. You know, people say, "Look, if there's two things that could change about the Novus Order, what would it be?" I'd say Ad Orientum's the first place. I think a priest should start, and then communion on the tongue, and I think other things naturally write itself. But is it good enough? Even our, even the Latin Mass technically isn't good enough for God, but it's the closest that, you know, that and the, the Byzantine rites, you know, these old, old rites are the closest that we can get. I, I think that's a good positive step for the Norris Ordo. Um, I think that if, if it was Ad Orientum, um, Return of Sacred Music and Communion on the Tongue, um, I think that that would do a tremendous amount. Because at that point, we really just start talking about if you want to hear the mass of the vernacular or if you want to hear the mass in, in a different in the in the older languages and i've always said this because 
I'll give a plug real quick to Thomas Aquinas College because they had the best Novus Ordo I've ever seen. That was an ad oriental Latin mass, essentially, or a vernacular Latin mass, essentially. And I said to my friends, I said, if this is what the Novus Order was as I experienced it growing up, I think us as trads still have a bit of an argument, but I think it'd be considerably less. Um, you know, so, so, so with the Anglican Ordinariate. I went to an Anglican Ordinariate Mass in Pasadena, and it was high Elizabethan English ad orientum, communion on the tongue. And I was like, again, this is, that felt like home too. So hmm. um, I wish, I, I think that the nice thing about what's happening now is that reverence is coming back to the Novus Ordo. I would love to see more ad orientum. In some places there is, but yeah, that's a, that's a very good starting point. Yeah. I took a lot in mass, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, I had always been, ever since I became a Catholic, it had always been my experience of um, having a reverent um, liturgy, especially the most of the time I spent at is the Dominican Rite, a Dominican mm -hmm. Father's Church in Yankton, yeah, uh -huh. Iowa, um, St. Dominic's. Mm -hmm. Very, very reverent, right? I mean, because they had still had the altar rails. Um, so, you know, my experience has been maybe just one or two when I'm visiting places, you know, yeah. different different places, have, having, like, okay, what? what? Well, even with, so we talk about, like, church architecture, because, you know, the two things I think that most Catholics noticed was the, the recovation, they gutted all the churches, they brought the altar out right towards the knee, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so even for out into Norris Ordos, you see that and you go, okay, well, unless it's one of those like understandable like freestanding altars in St. Peter's Basilica, um, why wouldn't the altar be at the very back of the church? Right. And on top of that, why wouldn't the tabernacle be in the center of the altar? And so I think that that rein reinvent our reinvigoration of Adorantum does raise natural traditional questions because the priest doesn't need to go behind the altar anymore and he's not going to present to the people versus populum has allowed for a lot of geriatrics, even in very good priests. They'll tell you, these ones who learn outer enter, they're like, there's this prerogative, there's this desire to perform when you're facing the people. Mm, yeah, and I think it's yeah. natural. Yeah, it's, it's natural. natural. And you're always going to look at them and try to get them activated. Yeah. And I, if, I, if I could tell you how much time I heard active participation in my life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, but no, outer enter focuses back on God authentically. And yeah. it's, it's, it's easier to say the black and view the red. If you're doing that, to, to I, I don't. I, I don't think a lot of people recognize the psychological effects also of, of versus populum. Mm -hmm. um, that the people need to see father, their father, their spiritual father, just like your your, your children in house. You know, your wife are going to have children. Yeah, it's good for children to see their father praying. You know their parents all together praying, especially their father praying, yeah. and and it's important for the laity, the people, to see their father living his life that's oriented towards Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the if the liturgy is our highest form of prayer, our highest form of prayer, and we ought to see our father pray, is very sad that we don't see our father, our spiritual father living his life in a liturgy oriented mm -hmm. towards Christ. He says, it's just not, he's, he's facing us. We're facing him. Um, you know, I wrote a whole book about the liturgy divine symphony. I get the theology, you know, I get the Masonic influence of it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that is problematic, 
but it's it's it's, it's even deeper than what I think a lot of people recognize just on a psychological level. Our life, our entire life is a procession from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. We're always processing. We're always going here. We're always going there. And what the liturgy is trying to teach is that wherever we're going, as much as life is, is a procession, we should be processing towards Calvary, right? Sure. And we don't and we don't even get to see that in our highest form of prayer with our priests, right? We see him processing towards the altar in the beginning. We see processions during the, um, you know, during the um, offering and during the communion rites. We see, we see the procession. We see the movement towards Calvary, but then there's just this, this um, interruption, right? Yeah. With with the, how how the altar is situated, as you're saying, in in the middle, in the, in the priest is. It's just it's weird, and it's it's it seems obstructive and it seems um artificial mm, yeah and so yeah it, it, i mean it, it, it's really deep so like i said i'm, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad that i have a new book to read now by the way divine symphony sounds wonderful oh uh, yes me. <laughs> uh, it's my favorite it's my favorite book okay know? well yeah so, so, I, I, so, I have to send you a copy oh yes please i'm gonna <laughs> get that in writing no i that's so true and one thing that's so incredible is when when mass is ad orientum, when a priest is doing it that way, the complete focus is on God. From the people offering our petitions, the priest, and look at the, the role of the priest. The priest is in persona Christi. And how many times versus popular in the Novus Order have we relegated a priest to a, to a to a community organizer, essentially? He's flocked by an army of lay Eucharistic ministers. He has lay people come up and do the readings. You know, he comes off the altar to receive the gifts from lady. He he, he'll come out to the crowd for the kiss of peace, you know, and go up and down depending on, on what kind of priest he is. And, you know, meanwhile, you see such serious devotion to Christ naturally infused when he is nothing but the center of our adoration in Mass Adorantum. And I think that's why, you know, there's a lot, again, that I, I find that the Novus Ordo can learn, not just from Latin Mass, but, you know, this is one great thing about the Eastern Rites is that they've, they've kept a lot of that sensibility. And I know they've had to fight for it a lot of time. But Adorantum across the Catholic world, across the Orthodox world, I mean, it so makes sense that it's been righted for 2,000 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely strange to the world. At, at no point in time in history did, did we ever think until Vatican, until the post-conciliar documents, you know, mm -hmm. Vatican II came along, did we even think that a people at prayer does not pray in the direction of their source of revelation. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Every every religion, even pagan religions, understand mm -hmm. this basic thing. You pray in the direction of your source of revelations. The Jews still get it, the Muslims still get it. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, uh, most people most uh, well, you know, most uh, well, you know, the Latin rites, the older Latin rites, the traditional Latin rite, the Dominican Missa Cantata, mm -hmm. all, all the yeah. older ones still get it. The people in the East get it. Only people who don't get this, get it, is is you know we have this one new order rite yeah. that is just a complete aberration. Like nobody has ever thought this that you don't pray in the direction of your source revelation. It's just weird. Yeah, and this is the this is the great problem again. It's like we we know that the new mass was created by committee essentially. Right. And we, and what's nice about us nowadays, we know who all the belligerents, we know all the belligerents, we know those who are really seeking to go further with the liturgy, those who are trying to pull it back. I mean, we, it, it's out there. And 
whenever we ask, well, why was this? It wasn't for a matter of comprehensibility. I've always said this. If, if, if the Second Vatican Council set out to do, the, to do its mission that we here wanted to do in the spirits, it would have essentially just created the fraternity of St. Peter then. It would have exercised greater liturgical um, liturgical reverence amongst the faithful and amongst the priests. It would have created, like, in incentivized more priests, more laity, which the church has been doing in the documents of the 20th century already. So, you know, this ambiguity that the noble theology, and then how that relates now to, well, we don't need the trappings of the sacramentals. We don't need the trappings of tradition. So out go the altar rails. Out goes the rosary. Out goes the St. Michael prayer at the end of Mass, which Louis XIII was specifically coined to keep Satan from entering the church. Out goes reverence. Out goes sacred music. Out goes everything. The sensible ways of building churches. In comes the felt banners and the carpets. And you're going you're gonna to love it. And now it's like 60 years onward. I don't know how anybody... I'm so happy we're having really just serious conversations on the fruits of Vatican II. The fruits are rotten. And people need to admit that in order for us to return to tradition. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simple as that. And I love what you said about the priest functioning as a community organizer. And I think you tainted me because the next time I go to Mass, I go to, you know, we go to Mass on um, Scott Air Force Base, you know, Norvis Ordo. Sure. It's about as reverent as you can get. We do say the prayer of St. Michael afterwards. Oh, that's good. Yeah. But, um, but um, yeah, the priest is a community organizer. If you tainted me, next time I'm at Mass, I'm going mm -hmm. to think I'm at a Black Lives Matter protest or something like that. Yeah. Or some sort of... Um, <laughs> <laughs> community organizing like, uh, you, you really you really messed me up with that one jordan i, I mean it's true look how the roles relegated um and i'll say this real quick i'm at so i where i where i work at the augustine institute there's daily masses in the norvis order it's very reverent um i made a little video earlier because i saw i was like if this is how the norvis order is like a low mass norvis order none of the stupid guitars or anything like that like the priest no kiss of peace oh my gosh thank god like no interruption, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, I'm like, this is we're moving in the right direction. But yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, it's like I don't. I want my priest to be my potter. He is my spiritual father. I want to be willing because and now because our churches are getting attacked and vandalized, you have you might have to be willing to go to jail, fight and die for the sake of the altar. Right. right so right. the last thing I want is I don't want you know I don't want Father Bob Boomer to kind of make me go okay, yeah, so he's my, my priest father. I want like a real serious solid priest. My priests here at, in Colorado are ex-Marines, by the way, so so we're doing okay. <laughs> they don't speak up. They're, they're typically solid. A lot of people who blame, you know, who say that God, um, you know, in his permissive will, or no, they, they'll go even further. They say that God um, um, gave us yep. the corona or the Wuhan, whatever you want to call it. He, he willed that on us because of whatever. If you if we if we want to accept that and we have to keep following that logic to to his reasonable conclusions, well, we have to say, well, thereby God is also displeased with the sign of peace and um, all these other things that when I'm um, holding hands during the Potter Noster, mm -hmm. all these other things that that, that 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 went away because of the whole Corona thing. So now. You know, because <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, all these things went away because of the, the pandemic. Yeah, nobody's holding hands and nobody's you know doing the sign of peace. Although I think last mass I was I was at when I was in St. Louis went to a uh, traditional uh, culturally black Catholic church. Yeah, 
and and you know this was a sign of peace. Uh huh. Which was you can just you can like, if you want to hear the influence of the sixties, just do that, right? Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, oh my god! Have you ever seen a liturgical dancer it, at mass before? I didn't. I had never seen one until I came to LA. By the way, oh, yours. Okay, uh, yeah. don't go. Don't go to Los Angeles. I haven't been treated to that. <laughs> it's a, it's a sight. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a remnant of Cardinal Mahoney across Los Angeles. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Jordan David Pacheco. dance. They said. I <laughs> <laughs> <By> mean, <laughs> buddy. Jordan Pacheco, man, thanks for coming on Talking Catholic, man. It was so fun talking to yeah, you, man. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so I'd like to talk more in depth about some issues with you later. Man, this is this is a great just going around the block, hearing from you, and getting your thoughts on a lot of different things, man. Thanks for coming on Talking Catholic. Yeah, I appreciate that, David. Can't wait to be on next time. We'll have some fun. Amen. Amen. Fool me, we can't get fooled again.